If you're looking for a hunting and fishing podcast that celebrates wild food ingredients and how to acquire them, check out the Food Afield podcast. We take you into the field with us while we adventure for food in the backcountry. The focus is on traditional bow hunting and fly fishing, but we explore all of the ways to fill your freezer. You can listen to the Food Afield podcast on Spotify and Apple or wherever you find your podcasts. listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. So Mateen, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. Yeah, it was, we did, we did the moose, the Revelstoke moose uh, podcast last, last summer, last fall. It was, it was definitely last year. Uh, So that was, that was where you gave us a synopsis of your master's thesis that you had had completed and successfully defended on the moose density reduction program in the North Revelstoke region of Southern British Columbia that is part of the Endangered Caribou Recovery Program up there managing moose population, which was a indirect way at reducing wolf density. and. That was uh, that was a great episode. So I, there's something I want to tell you about that episode. Okay. So when hunting season rolled around and that antlerless moose season opened in the North Revy area, mm-hmm. I had some people from the government of BC say, "Man, there's people like that are harvesting." cows and calves and you know we see people out there and hunters are saying what the heck is going on this doesn't seem right and they were asking me about it and so i said look <laughs> we got this podcast with this friend of ours called named mateen and and he did his master's research on this thing here's the episode and they listened to it and then I heard back from them and they said, you know what? Like, that was amazing. Now we're able to talk to people, hunters from the public and kind of have be a little bit better informed. But mm-hmm. as government employees, they did not know why that hunting season, that limited entry hunting season existed there. Okay. They, they just knew it was there, but they didn't know the rationale behind it, how it tied to the caribou recovery program and so on and so on and all the details that you explained then in that episode. So that is, so thank you, you know, for coming on and talking about that. And I just wanted to let you know, this, this is where these shows go. Like they become very important resources for people. And in this case, it was people that worked in wildlife they were like we don't actually know we can't explain why the province has this hunting season and our show and your explanation of it from your research actually formed the basis of informing people that were in the wildlife field in the province so wow um, that's great to hear thanks thanks for that yeah no problem it's you know it's definitely it's been around for a long time since 2003 and it's one of those things that carries a lot of misinformation as well. Uh, we hear it 
quite often about folks just, and we touched on this in the podcast, like people uh, thinking that there's antlerless hunts all throughout the province and that it's a similar scenario in the Bonaparte and in the Kootenays just because of those, you know, token one tags. But yeah, that's good to hear that the message is being spread. And uh, I think Rob and I are going to get on a, a webinar with BCWF in April and um, talk more about it and answer some questions from the public. So maybe a, a humble plug for that for listeners who okay. want to learn more or grill uh, Dr. Rob Soroy and I, um, feel free to attend that. You should see something in the next few weeks on that. So so that is the BC Wildlife Federation. In, each year they run webinars. So if you follow them on social media, you'll see when these conservation webinars come out. They have different speakers on talking on different topics. Uh, they do a presentation and then there's a Q&A session at, at the end of it. And then they're really good. Uh, they have fishing ones. They have wildlife ones. Uh, and and they're great. So, yeah, that's, that's what Matina's saying that uh, himself and Dr. Rob Soroya, he lives in Revelstoke, who's also a caribou researcher, uh, among other things, are going to be doing a webinar on the moose density program where hunting is being used as a management tool to manage wolf densities to help caribou recovery. So if we, uh, when we see that one come out, we'll plug that on the social media as well. So looking Sounds forward good. to that. Cool. Um, hey, everybody. It's Mark Hall, your host. And it's Curtis Hall, the co-host. Get the Hunter Conservationist podcast is brought to you by community-minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. They combine high-quality vehicles and services with a genuine commitment to our community. Their team is there to give you the best customer service in the automotive industry. They're proud to offer a wide selection of trucks, tires, and services that are sure to meet your needs. Plus, they're dedicated to giving back by supporting us at the Hunter Conservationist, Ducks Unlimited, and therefore, conservation. So if you get anything done at Alpine Toyota or buy one of our many, many special edition vehicles, you can feel good driving around. So, as totally. always, thanks to Alpine. Thanks, Alpine. Yeah, so this is this is our first podcast of the year on black bears. Uh, black bear hunting season is coming up in the springtime, so we will have to say that we need a Toyota Tacoma black bear wrap special edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll look like a big, lines. yeah, like a big black bear going going through the bush on four wheels. So that that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Mateen Hasimi, uh, wildlife scientist at UBC Okanagan campus. You are a busy, busy guy. What, what all do you have on the go? High level projects? Yeah. So I am working for biodiversity pathways and we do a lot of cool and important work with, um, indigenous communities, the federal government, provincial governments, and I'm mostly focused on supporting several indigenous communities in Western Canada with um, 
supporting them in their objectives for monitoring, recovering, managing species, and mostly focusing on caribou and moose. And yeah, supporting them through science and also through, you know, facilitation of meetings. So, and also trying to incorporate uh, indigenous knowledge into the outputs and decision-making frameworks that are in place in British Columbia and through the government of Canada. So that's exciting work. And yeah, having uh, really enjoying the the place I'm at and the people I'm working with. Wow. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, it looks like you're really, really falling into a very specialized niche in uh, the field of wildlife science and and I think a greatly a greatly needed one so sounds like it's a uh, very rewarding for you to kind of land in something like that early in your career rather than taking on going oh this is what I'd really like to be doing but I gotta take whatever whatever comes my way and you know and then you're 50 years old and you finally get to do what you're doing so uh so congratulations kind of hitting on something like that big that important like being so young so no thanks you were... Mark. I, I would say uh it helps to be passionate about things and it also helps to be at the right place in the right time and have you know a supportive team of mentors that are keen to push people into the direction they want to go so certainly thankful for that but yeah i joke with my bosses and whatnot that i and it's the truth i just wake up in the morning and i'm super keen to get to campus or open the computer because I, I really do love what I do and I think it's important work. So yeah, definitely a privilege to to be in that in that space. Yeah, good for you. And you're also busy outside of wildlife science in helping support new hunters learning to hunt um, through the UBC Okanagan Collegiate Chapter of the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. I, I'm, I'm always following you and you got young university folks out there learning to get ducks in the fall and ice fishing and out in the woods doing stuff and you're just doing that on your spare time. So that's that's pretty amazing. Yeah, we've we've got a great group and I'm in this interesting space where I'm kind of a de facto leader now because I you know graduated at UBC um, back in the spring, but uh, we've got a good leadership group that's taking over the reins, which is nice to see. And yeah, we took a bit of a hiatus this fall, but um, we're kicking things back forward and had an ice fishing event. And uh, we're getting this gear sharing library really fully dialed, which is exciting. We have um, ice fishing gear and tents and backpacking equipment, you know, that students can quote rent, but not, it's just like a library book. They check it out and um, yeah, really just trying to decrease those barriers that so many students have to the outdoors. And there's an, a lot of interest, I'd say at UBC and students getting outside and learning how to hunt. We, we always hear like, can we just shadow you guys while you hunt? Like we don't want to shoot. And for us, that's you know, we love hearing that and we're, we're happy to take out anyone, um, to show them what hunting's like. And so, yeah, all that to say, it's a really awesome program with, um, a really promising new, new and young leadership group taking over. Wow. 
Well, that that'd be cool to have a bunch of folks tagging along when you get an elk up on the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree. So, yeah, you got the wheels hey, you know all those, you know all those big backpacks that you checked out of the library. <laughs> well, this is why this is why you did that. So, send out an email at like eight o'clock at night. You know, I could I could pack this heavy load, and and you could observe me doing it, but you'll learn better by hands-on carrying the load yourself so <laughs> hilarious <laughs> that's that's cool all right let's let's dive into th this topic so just recently there's was a paper came published in the journal of wildlife management so this is a this is a very prestigious wildlife management journal in north america probably like the eminent one i don't know if you would you would say it is like it's the journal of all journals for for sure i think anyways uh there are i would, lots I would quickly of them. say it's yeah it's a pretty good journal it's not super top tier but it's a solid journal i but not not like science or nature oh, okay okay i don't those have are, like those are biggies. memorized but it's um yeah it's a solid paper for sure and there's there's been a lot of great science that's been published in in, in that the journal, journal of wildlife about. management Okay. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the reason I bring that up is, you know, I've talked about this before. There are scientific journals out there that are on a little on the sketchy side. They're overseas. Um, they're kind of in the business of publishing. And so there are people that can get um, sketchy papers, maybe papers that are not going to make it through, you know, big journals like Nature, you know, or Science, like you were saying, and you know, they pay a lot and then, and they get published and then it becomes quote unquote science. So, so journal of wildlife management is not, not one of those. Uh, it, it is, it's a respected, uh, journal in, in North America. So this paper that came out, uh, was called experimental test of the efficacy of hunting for controlling human wildlife conflict. So, it's basically about black bear hunting in Ontario and sort of asking the question, is hunting helping or hurting human bear conflict in Ontario? Uh, just kind of in a nutshell, because papers always kind of have titles or maybe they're, <laughs> you can't quite glean from them what, what, uh, what the paper's about. Um, so just as a bit of a background on this, um, it, in 2021, the spring black bear hunt in Ontario came back as a fully reinstated hunt. It was banned by the government in, I think, 1999. And so it took almost 10 years of... Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters and different groups working with the government to bring about some pilot hunts, spring hunts, and then the full reinstatement across all the management units uh, in Ontario of a full, you know, um, perpetual spring black bear hunt. The reason that it was banned, as I remember we did a podcast uh, with this with Dr. Keith Monroe a couple of springs ago. Uh, so if you're interested in knowing the history of that, I would go back to that podcast. 
uh, with Keith, but sort of the premise was, is there were accusations made that hunters were shooting sows in the springtime that had cubs and there were lots of cubs being orphaned. And that kind of caught the, the attention of politicians and the public. And there was quickly this decision made to end the spring black bear hunt. It wasn't true. Uh, and, but it was, it was one of those things like, uh, Dr. Adam Ford talks about in misplaced, uh, conservation, the paper, uh, that he wrote, uh, we did a podcast with him a couple years ago on that is there's this concept where, where when information is put out into the public discourse, if it's, if it's not true, it sort of embeds itself farther and deeper into society than the truth does that follows behind it. It's, it's almost like you can never, never reel some of that stuff back. And, and in this case, this idea that hunters were orphaning, uh, cubs went far and deep and it took hunters and the conservation communities and the scientists at Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters and the Ontario ministry, like 10 years, um, to kind of convince the elected officials to that it was okay to bring the hunt back this wasn't really what was going on so anyways that's that's a bit of a background i don't know for a hundred percent sure you can give me your thoughts on this mateen but that seems to be like a little bit of a premise for this paper in that a couple of the things that came up during the ban was that the number of conflict calls over black bear conflict with humans went up during the decade when there was no spring black bear hunting. And I would assume, and I don't know for a hundred percent, but part of the argument was that hunting could be a management tool to help reduce some of that conflict, which seemed to be getting worse once hunting was taken away. That's probably a whole, um, you know, I guess area that maybe that's what the question was that this paper was trying to answer. But anyways, that's kind of a bit of history from what Curtis and I have done with various podcasts uh, with OFHA and, and whatnot on this topic that seems to be kind of the background behind why this paper came out. So Anyways, I'll hand it over to you, Mateen. I saw on social media that you had spent, this paper caught your attention. You had dug into it a little bit using your expertise in science and had some questions about the study and its conclusions. So maybe kick us off and kind of walk us through your understanding of this study, um, what they were trying to accomplish, how they went about doing it and sort of what what their primary conclusions and recommendations were for sure yeah so i i guess i'll preface that my knowledge of this study system and the study itself is limited to what i read in the paper and in terms of the motivations for the paper like i also don't have that you know behind the scenes knowledge but i think you put it pretty well mark like what you know one can infer that that is the motivation to look at the effects of the ban and to maybe 
addressed some of those public concerns or statements that, you know, the banning of hunting um, can lead to more conflict and perhaps the scientists wanted to test that. So, yeah, I guess to start off, um, you know, a big element of this study is what they call a before after control impact. Also, uh, an acronym that's uh, BACI is the is the acronym that's used. So that's kind of the the dream or like the um, the really ideal scenario for wildlife biologists is to have that before and after set of data to test their hypotheses because it's extremely difficult to start researching something after you know a significant policy change has been enacted because there's variables that are not going to be reflected in the data you collect you know after um, say a, a major policy has been implemented like reinstating a black bear hunt and so uh, this paper here, they have that opportunity to look at information before and after um, that major policy was enacted, that major policy being the spring bear hunt. And they used data, um, specifically human conflict data, in a few places in Ontario, in southern Ontario and north central Ontario, to look at the effect or basically the um, the signal from when what the human bear conflicts were prior to the spring bear hunt. So I believe that was 2004 to 2014 or 2013. And then after um, the spring bear hunt to answer that question, you know, did spring bear hunting make a difference? And so they used uh, human conflict data, so recorded incidents of a bear getting into garbage or harassing an individual to to test that. And yeah, they looked at that. Um, and so so this was a bit of a unique situation. what What you were saying is because hunting was actually paused for a decade. But there was data being collected on on human bear conflict, where anywhere else, like to, for the scientists to say, "Hey, could could you stop hunting for ten years so we can measure this stuff and then start it up again to have that before and after thing?" It seems like you guys are trying to fit yourself into the real world is just carrying on doing its business and you're as best as possible trying to set up these studies and ask these questions where this idea of like before and after something is, this is a very clear, um, like there wasn't bear hunting and then there is bear hunting. So, so they're able to that before, before and after kind of scenario is almost maybe fairly unique in the hunting world to, be testing something in hunting where you would want to know what would be the effect if there wasn't hunting because we don't really have a lot of opportunities to actually pause hunting without pissing a lot of people off. Totally. Uh, yeah, again, it's a it's a gold standard or like a very desirable uh, scenario for wildlife researchers. And I guess I'll clarify, I think I heard you say, Mark, um, that there was no hunting, but I know you meant just spring bear hunting. There was no, because there was still yeah, fall. There was, there was fall hunting. Yep, yep. absolutely. Yep. Yep. So there was fall hunting. And yeah, and I also, um, 
I think I said 2014, but it was 2016 that that spring hunt was initiated. And so again, they're looking at these, um, these reports of uh, human black bear incidents, incidences of conflict. And also they took into account, of course, the black bear harvest, which they have a metric of that. So they kind of have these multiple lines of evidence to assess whether or not this bear hunt had an effect on um, the spring bear hunt had an effect on human conflict. And I'll back up a little bit further and give folks kind of a, a 101 of wildlife management and something that wildlife biologists really strive for in understanding populations or understanding scenarios like this is something that we call precision. So when you're shooting a rifle or sighting it in and you're shooting at a target, you are shooting at the target and when you are a little bit off, you can sometimes, you know, tweak your scope to make to basically shift your crosshairs over to where even if your bullet is not hitting the bullseye, if it's say three inches high and um, two inches to the right, oftentimes what folks will do is just, you know, tweak their up and down on their scope and try and get their crosshairs and their groups to align with where on paper that bullet is. And that is called precision. So making sure that your group is precise. Now, accuracy would be hitting that bullseye in the very middle. That is accuracy or truth. And in wildlife science, it's something similar in the sense that finding truth or accuracy with say wildlife populations is incredibly difficult because often these wildlife populations are extremely hard to measure. They, you know, live in forested canopies and our ability to monitor them and to get that truth is really difficult to do. Of course, there's populations that make this possible, like say elephants, you can in essence census them or penguins um, that, you know, gather on an ice shelf. Um, but for the most part, we strive for that precise estimate and where precision comes into play is having consistent and repeated sampling and also doing so at time intervals that are long enough to capture everything that's going on. So that's of course nested within the consistency and repetition. And so for wildlife managers, that's something that we really strive to capture. And it's something that you know, the data is here in this, um, in this Ontario paper. However, one thing that they're missing um, from my uh, scientific lens is the duration of the study. So the, um, the repeatability uh, basically of the sample in the sense that they knew what was happening for about a decade when the spring bear hunt was banned. However, when the spring bear hunt was uh, initiated in 2016, they only had about four years of data where they could look at and say that were where they could basically assess that information. Because again, they have quite a bit of information before because the spring bear hunt um, was banned 1999. in 1999. And they had all the way up until 2016, in essence, to do that. And so to me, a, a hole in their study is 
and it's not, uh, you know, I'll emphasize that I don't think that they're massaging data or, you know, being, um, they're misrepresenting the data. I simply think their timelines are too short because there's only four years after that hunt and getting back to the wildlife monitoring aspect, like so much can happen um, in even a 10 year window where we really want to look at those extended samples of time. So even beyond a decade, two decades, three decades, I would say probably past 10 or 15 years is when we can really start understanding what is affecting a population. And I'll give you an example. If we want to look at grizzly bear conflicts in the east slopes of the Alberta Rockies, and we're looking at the town of Banff, and there is a four-year window that we look at um, the reports from wardens and you know people calling 911 that there's a grizzly bear tearing up their backyard. If we only look at four years, what could be happening is there could be three of those four years were record drought years where the berry crops, the shepherdia, the buffalo berries, you know, a primary food source for grizzly bears, they didn't develop um, at the usual time that they do. And therefore these bears could have been hooped and could have been exceptionally hungry. And they could have moved into the town again um, on those anomaly years. Uh, and therefore that could bias or confound the sample because it's not a representation of a say normal sample of a bear life or multiple bear lives. And again, more data is always better, but there is these like fine lines of, um, especially in wildlife and especially with large mammals where we just want that sample to be adequate. And the, the Ontario paper, uh, in my opinion, stopped short at that just by a few years by capping it at 2019. And the reason for that, or the reason that I think it's problematic and potentially confounding is that in this, excuse me, in this paper, they don't look at or assess increasing human population. So they don't take into account um, human population growth as a factor. And let me back up a little bit further, like when wildlife biologists are testing a hypothesis. So again, a hypothesis is a basically a prediction. You know, one could say that in this paper, the hypothesis that was that if spring uh, black bear hunting is banned, there will not be a difference in uh, the amount of human conflict or there could also be the the opposite hypothesis that if spring bear black hunting um, is cancelled, that there will be an increase in conflict, which from the sounds of it, it sounds like some Ontario hunters had that hypothesis. And when wildlife biologists set out to test these hypotheses, they start looking at all of the variables. And so a variable could be a variable or factor. They're used interchangeably. Um, and those variables could be the, um, the number of bears, the, the weather uh, each year, the human population, the, um, the policy, the hunting policy that was, that was or was not in effect, the number of prey animals on the land base. And so wildlife biologists want to include as many of those factors or variables when they set forth to analyze the data. 
because just like anything else in you know medicine or anything we we want to know everything that's going on and we don't want our sample to be biased or confounded by something that we missed and okay. so yeah so in go ahead. in this case they're they're looking at the question of um does sort sort of I, I guess we'll simplify it does or did the spring bear hunting make human bear conflict better like less of it or did it make it worse in other words the hunting yep. created more conflict so so those are those are maybe kind of like uh, a way of restating what sort of the two main hypotheses were was spring black bear hunting hurting human wildlife conflict or helping wildlife uh human bear uh conflict yes. now what you're saying about all you're asking that the scientists were asking that question but all these other real world things are going on like you're looking at the effect of hunting on black bears in one spring uh or one fall but it's like hey that's the fall that it was a drought summer and there was no berries exactly or that was the year that for whatever reason that town um had a municipal worker strike and no one was picking up the garbage so totally. so there's these other real world things going on that could explain the reduction in bear conflict or explain an increase in human bear conflict all this other noise when they're just trying to isolate how did hunting affect human bear conflict and so what you're saying is you know wildlife scientists need to be able to look at all of these other factors and kind of like have a way of of filtering that noise out and just isolating what they're interested in in this case it was just it was just hunting is that kind of totally yeah no well said and yeah like i said that's kind of the goal with any scientific analyses is to look at multiple factors that could be affecting it. and it's something that we should look at you know in our lives with any analyses that is or scientific study that is put in front of us like if it's just one factor or one variable that they're looking at we should look into it more and try and understand um you know is there potentially something that was confounding that and you said um you know another thing to add would be say if this study lapsed covid like if for an entire year, people weren't out and about or, you know, moved away from their summer cottages, that could certainly have an impact in the number of human bear conflicts. And so mm, yeah. that's exactly yeah. what um, my, I would say really only gripe is with this paper is that the timeline post, um, so the after of the backy, after the spring bear hunt was initiated, the timeline is just too short and they don't they don't include the um, the human growth component. So over four years, you know, I quickly looked at the the population growth rate of Ontario, and it's quite high. Like the population's been booming in Ontario. So ignoring that, um, and I will say that they have a couple of sentences in this manuscript, but they state that the population remained relatively static, and there was no citation that backed that. And the human population the human population. Yep. Um, they didn't, um, they didn't cite where that information was. And one can deduce that like, even in rural, uh, Ontario, which not all of these uh, study areas were in rural Ontario, that 
the population's growing quickly. So you can imagine if there's more houses being built, more cottages, more people recreating on the land, you know, and we see this even within two year timescales, um, that that's going to make a difference in the number of bare human conflicts. And that was unfortunately ignored in this paper. And that's something that, um, yeah, mm -hmm. I think should have been in there. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying it's a bad study. I'm just saying more, there's more information that could have been included. And it, I'll say there's, I think I said I had one gripe. I, I'll say I have two, the not including the human growth or the, the changes of human population is one. And then the time scale. Okay. So let's, let, let's jump right to like the thrust of the paper. What did they say about the role of spring bear hunting in reducing human bear conflict? Did it help? Did it make it worse? What, what was, what was kind of the main findings that, that should put some of this other stuff into context? Totally. Yeah. So their conclusions were that the spring bear hunt and the, you know, associated harvest with that had a negligible impact or actually kind of a, a zero reduction um, in the interactions, in the incidents um, with spring bear hunting. So there, so the primary conclusion was that the spring bear hunting did not reduce human bear conflict, which occurs mostly in the fall. Yep. Okay. Um, wasn't there a piece somewhere in the paper where they said, um, it, either in one of the study areas or overall, it could have actually made it worse? I did not catch that. Um, it could have been I, in there. I just recall somewhere where they were saying, um, it looked like that, that the hunting may have been explained in, um, why an area had more conflict in the fall and had something to do with in the springtime, the harvest is concentrated on large males. Um, so then the sub adults uh, became more of a problem in the oh, fall. Right. And, and there was kind of, it, they didn't flesh that argument out really well, but it kind of, it kind of said you remove the big males and then all of these juvenile males uh, either like don't get knocked off by the big boar or they they just, you know, right. have a free for all. And then they cause all these problems where if you wouldn't have removed the big bear, then, you know, that problem wouldn't have. I just there, I remember some some aspects yeah. around that where they they sort of insinuated that hunting actually made it worse in some places. Totally. They didn't test that, but. The, yeah, they do like, they did cite that and that has been found in other places. And that's also a, a, a scenario that unfolds with mountain lions where, you know, a dominant male, when you shoot that male, there's a release basically, or a vacuum rather, where that male was overseeing a large home range. And when that large, you know, alpha cougar or grizzly bear um, is harvested, that creates this infill scenario where juvenile and subordinate males are able to move in maybe at, you know, five or so to one ratio of what it was before of males running around. In other words, like kind of chaos of um, a system. Mm. And there's certainly been some, some science showing that, but 
again, they, I think they were just uh, citing that and it was just kind of a, yeah, it wasn't, like you said, it but, wasn't thoroughly tested, but they just sort of said, you know, right. kind of at the end of the paper, oh, by the way, hunting could have actually made it worse. <laughs> so, so I, cause I remember reading that and it was like, whoa, hang on a second here. <laughs> You're kind of totally. And that's just, um, you know, more hypotheses. It's, it's common to see in a paper. Um, but yeah, it, you certainly can't make that statement without the data backing it. Um, but okay yeah here here's the here's the part sorry to jump in regulated um regulated presumably sustainable harvest was ineffective at reducing human bear interactions and incidents in the near term and might have increased both right so they're saying it that the the harvest the spring harvest was not effective in reducing human bear interactions uh, in the short term and may have actually increased it, but may have right. actually increased it. So, and again, this, like that could be whittled down and proven, um, in later studies, but I just don't think they have enough here to make those statements to, okay. to deduce okay. that from four years of, you know, and after on their, in their backy study. And, this is a common problem throughout wildlife science. I think one of the most common or famous examples that rings true to me is the the reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone National Park. You know, in the in the mid two thousands, there was a lot of papers coming out saying that the reintroduction of wolves in Yellowstone National Park, which I'll remind your listeners, they they dropped um, I want to say a dozen or so wolves in um, a couple places in 95, 96 in central Idaho and in Yellowstone National Park. And anyways, you know, there's a lot of prominent um, papers and prominent journals in the mid 2000s saying that because of the reintroduction of wolves, uh, you know, beavers are making a comeback and mm. trophic um cascades are taking place and so i'll go into a little more detail there like when folks say that reintroducing wolves brings beavers back what they're speaking to is that wolves suppress ungulate populations such as deer elk and moose which browse on deciduous plants and trees such as aspen and willow which you know we know that beavers use quite commonly but one thing these authors failed to include you know the variables and the factors that they failed to include was that after 96 or sorry 95 96 there was an epic winter the 96 97 winter which funny enough i was in a i was on a call today and someone was still mentioning that i think we were talking about skiing and they were just like do you remember how much snow was packed and um so there was the 96 97 winter which of course was not good for deer elk or moose and then there was also this liberalization of hunting tags that took place in the early 2000s where, and mind you, this was five or so years after wolves were reintroduced, but of course they were growing, but they weren't, you know, booming per se, the wolf population. And so Montana Fish and Wildlife, and I think even Wyoming started liberalizing the, the cow elk tags um, in this area. And I think the Yellowstone elk herd was at, at about 20,000 uh, in the early nineties. And I think recently they're in like the five or fours. Um, this is like 2020, but anyways, back to the early two thousands, they, 
liberalized a bunch of hunt um, cow elk tags, and that just hammered the the elk population. So there's two things. There was this, you know, once in a generation winter, and then there was this liberalization of adult females of hunting them, which we know there's no faster way to reduce a population than start harvesting the adult females. And so then these studies come out, you know, looking at the wolves that they were the, um, you know, the, the species that is, Oh, the grand, the grand architects of totally. And like beavers. Okay. Unequivocally, that's just not, there's merit to that. And the wolves certainly have driven and do drive ungulate populations down, but to attribute that wolf reintroduction to, you know, these trophic cascades and beavers increasing in populations and all of this, again, it was just premature and they are ignoring those confounding variables. And so the same thing could be unfolding in Ontario here of, again, the time, it's a very short amount of time. And also the human growth aspect of like over those four years and, you know, there's people building cottages and increasing their footprint on the land, camping more. And I I see a difference just in the last two years of the number of people like up north that I see in northern BC. And so even in four years in these in this 21st century we live in, human change can occur rapidly. So to ignore that and to not cite that, you know, the the point it's at the one of the last paragraphs that we detected no um or there's a static assessment of population, it basically is kind of pushed to the side, like we didn't really look at that. And to me, that's problematic. And, you know, it's not just um, problematic when it fits my beliefs of hunting, like there's other examples I can think of when, you know, I see uh, people claiming that uh, hunters are the reason that white-tailed deers are, white-tailed deer are in the you know, tens of millions in North America. And there's, you know, merit to hunters, uh, for sure, for hunting in the North American model, um, growing wildlife populations, turkey, elk, but a species like white-tailed deer, it's actually been the onset of agriculture and um, neighborhoods and fragmentation of, you know, forests that have led to the increases in white-tailed deer populations, climate change, so when like, you know, hunters say that, you know, the, the hunting North American model saved white-tailed deer and led to this super robust white-tailed deer population, that's again, something where I think we are missing the variables, mm, mm, but yeah. a species like elk and turkeys where specific translocations occurred and where, you know, the, the regulations were certainly catered to grow these species. That's some, that's a conclusion I can get behind objectively with with science. And so I think we should look at a lot of these studies, not just wildlife studies in that objective um, lens and ensure that there is rigor and ensure that there is repeated samples, ensure that it's done consistently, um, which I will say there, you know, there is consistency in the Ontario paper of the data they they have, the, the human uh, conflict data, the, the bear harvest data. I'm not doubting the consistency there. So yeah, anyways, that's just uh, some more context. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's all, it's r- really good stuff. I, I really appreciate like you're, like you really went through, through the paper and, th- and thought about it and using your knowledge of science to kind of talk about it. But this, this idea 
um, of the other things that were going on in the landscape. So this paper asked the central question, did, you know, does the spring bear hunt, the sustainable harvest, did it reduce human bear conflict? It kind of said, no, it didn't. Maybe it made it worse in some cases. Then, you know, what you were saying is, is okay, one of the shortcomings is they don't have, they didn't give enough time of the hunt being back in place. So the, you know, four years of, well, the hunt, the spring hunt's been in place. And then it was like, okay, what's the conclusion where maybe they need more time, 10 years down the road of the ups and downs of spring harvest and everything, and then go, okay, we've had 10 years of spring bear harvest. Let's look at this issue of human bear conflict and 10 years worth of harvest data. Yeah. Um, so you were saying that's a bit of a shortfall. And then some of the other factors they didn't look like that, like looked at, which the, one of the big ones you said was a lot more humans on the landscape in this time period that hunting wasn't taking place, mm-hmm. more cottages, more people being in the backcountry, punctuated by a period of time where people may not have been in their cottages or in the backcountry that much because of COVID, or maybe they were there more, but that took place during this time frame. So you were saying, if, if I interpret this right, there's kind of a few of those key things where you're not quite convinced that some of those other possibilities weren't explained well enough to account for for the for the uh, sort of no effect on reducing human bear conflict. Totally. Yeah, you summarized okay. it well, Mark. And I would even add like, these are like glaring shortcomings. These aren't like, you know, minimal ones. Mm-hmm. There's every study has these shortcomings and minimal ones. Like in my thesis, I had a whole paragraph dedicated to, you know, what do I think was a shortcoming or what could have been better? You know, what data am I missing? And they were relatively minor things, you know, talking about that I wasn't out there ground truthing things and that, you know, there could have been more data here and there, but they weren't like big ones, like the Ontario one of the human aspect, the, the time, like those are pretty significant. And I would gather if you took 10 of the top wildlife scientists in British Columbia and all asked them or anywhere, and you ask them to pick this apart, I would say with a lot of confidence that they would all turn to that, not all, but most of them would say, this is a problem, this should be extended. And perhaps they can come out with another manuscript in a few years and prove that spring bear hunting maybe didn't have an effect on human wildlife conflict. I'm not saying that's mm-hmm, not possible. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying yeah. the way the study is set up now is problematic for that those two shortcomings that you just eloquently um, summarized. And see, for me, looking at the paper, there was like a, just a couple sort of confounding factors that came into my mind. So your your human bear conflict, I I gather for the most part was in rural and semi-rural populated areas. So it's the issue of bears getting into people's stuff. Like it's not people hiking out in the wilderness areas 
getting chased and attacked by by bears um mm. it's that it's that attractants people's homes bird feeders garbage you know bears in doing stuff chicken coops you know that type of stuff which seems to be very typical of defining black bear conflict with people in north america so so asking this question well hunters were out there on the landscape and bears were terrorizing people in in the settled areas oh look hunting didn't reduce any of that bear conflict and i think there's a spatial element and it's like yeah this is your this is your study area looked at but all the hunters the bear hunters went way over there to get away from the homes and they weren't hunting close to the homes these bears would go into people's homes dig around at nighttime and then they'd go a hundred yards into the trees and sleep for the day and wait for dark again and but that's not where the hunters were exactly and and i think the the pattern of where hunters and how they hunted on the landscape may have explained the fact that the hunters sitting out there at a bait station way off in the wilderness going gee i hope a bear shows up and 100 kilometers away people are going oh my god there were three bears on the porch last night and they just sleep over there in the in the woods and the hunters are like you know i don't like the idea of like just sitting on the edge of these people's property line and waiting for the bears to come off the trampoline so we can shoot one of them that's not good for hunting so we're going to separate ourselves and so when you ask the question is hunting hurting or helping human bear conflict i think where the bears are making problems and where the hunters are is a really key part of is hunting a valid management tool for managing human bear conflict and it's like where are the two parties <laughs> you know and they're at opposite yeah. ends of the of the i don't know but no, just knowing Mark, i'll say that like the light bulb i've i've just the last minute of you talking my light bulb is going off and thinking like you are doing exactly what so many people should be doing. You are looking at this critically. And I admittedly overlooked that point until hearing it from you now that indeed they're looking at these resident, you know, more town-like bears. Perhaps not all of the study was looking at that, but you bring forth an incre- a really excellent point, Mark, that like that could be a, a confound. It's like looking at... Um, Missoula, Montana, we have, and many other places, you know, there's the trophy town bucks, right? And (laughs) the trophy town bucks are (laughs) increasing. So are uh, hunters in Montana. And so is the desire to shoot big trophy mule deer and white tails, like everyone wants to shoot a big deer. And yet I know for a fact that those town mule deer um, and white tails, the conflict increased. And it's it's just to your point like those could be town or you know habituated bears so what you're getting at is is really great and that like their sample could have been you know biased and the real metric that would be great to see would be changes in spring black bear or sorry changes in black bear populations overall which unfortunately is really difficult to measure Mm. um but even just another index to add to that, you know, aside from the, um, aside from the, the human conflict, would be good. But all that to say, I truly 
had not thought of that until you said it now. And I think that's an entirely appropriate critique. And yeah, something where a little bit more time could potentially answer that. But as you say, like bears, you know, bears can be different town bears and the, the bears out in the bush. So looking at the spring bear hunt policy and the effectiveness of that, again, is is dubious. Um, and more so too, hearing your your excellent point about the 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 town yeah, bears. Yeah, sort of like that. where were the bears and where were the hunters? So um, right, yeah. And there's like Curtis? a whole bunch of other interesting things to look at too with these hunts. And you know, Washington State, for example, uh, they banned cougar hunting in 1996, and mm-hmm. it's still banned. And I have a colleague who's works for the Kalispell tribe, Bart George, and he's a houndsman and a wildlife biologist. And he's testing whether or not um, these mountain lions, whether if there's increased adversive conditioning, so if these cougars are being, um, you know, chased more with dogs, is there an effect on them becoming more um, human adverse? And this is all on the crux that a lot of hunters in Washington and even wildlife managers think that cougars are becoming more habituated to people because they don't have dogs running them. Um, You can still shoot a cougar in Washington, but we know that that's incredibly difficult to harvest a cat. So anyways, my colleague Bart George is looking at, um, you know, if these mountain lions, whether or not they are, whether or not they do respond to hounds um, chasing them and whether or not that can be used as a tool to mitigate the increasing levels of human conflict that is occurring between the residents of rural Washington and the increasing or presumably increasing um, mountain lion population. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Um, Curtis, I was going to ask you, did you have any like questions or thoughts about the black bear study? And cause, I mean, cause it kind of makes, the hunter's argument of hunting is a management tool and hunting can help. One of the things they say, hunting can help reduce wildlife conflict. Here's a paper that said it didn't. And we're kind of going, well, hang on a second. Maybe that's not like the best conclusion. What, what are you, have you got any questions for Mateen? Um, kind of about, about the paper or just kind of thoughts of, the topic in general no nothing that that wasn't covered i usually always have a couple questions with with the podcast and just through the natural flow of conversation they they end up getting getting answered um which is which is kind of cool about these things me being a non-science background guy having these because some of the the stuff like you'll you'll email me You'll be like, oh, here's this scientific paper, and I'll have a look at like the first couple paragraphs, and I'll be like, oh man, I not 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 fly, and I don't I don't understand it, and so it's uh, it's cool to always just be able to sit back almost as a listener, and uh, and have these things broken down in more layman's terms, easier. So to, that that's to digest. That's a good perspective. So. When you first had a look at the paper, did you kind of glean this thing off of it where it sort of said like, like 
while hunting didn't actually reduce the bear conflict, therefore hunting is spring black bears in Ontario is bad and it should be banned. And did, like, did, did you kind of get like a, did it rub you or, or did you kind of go like, Hey, wait a second. This, this paper is not saying that hunting is, is, is good. Or like, what, what was your kind of, did it get your hackles up or did you just kind of like, Oh yeah, no, it's no. I cause, expect. cause I, I feel like I have a bit of enough of an understanding to make a, uh, I, I, I always hate using the word assume, but assume that hunting was actually making a difference. And just the fact that I kind of, excuse me, I was totally blind to this issue. I had, I had no idea that this had been released. And then when you sent me an email, you said, Hey, mm. here's what Mateen's saying about it. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, if, if Mateen's going off about it, I'm like, there's gotta be something, <laughs> something wrong. So I'm, I didn't actually have the perspective of it, of seeing the, the paper and reacting to it without a little bit of, I kind of get swayed that way. Cause it's like, if you send me something or you're like, Hey, check, check this out. And then it's kind of like, I, my spidey sense is like, oh, there's, you, you know, there's you know be, something. I'm like, something's weird about there's this. A, so this, this is a trick question. We'll, we'll call the expert in. We, we wouldn't, we, we wouldn't be making a podcast about it. if There was a little bit more to it. <laughs> yeah. Um, exactly. I'll, I'll add another thing I just thought of, um, kind of like a antithesis or, you know, contrasting example of spring bear hunting. Um, and that is New Jersey. So New Jersey banned bear hunting. I think it was like, two or three years ago and there hasn't been a study but there hasn't been a paper i should say but i did read an article that clear as day the human wildlife conflicts between bears and people in new jersey increased significantly after the hunt was banned and a reminder this is a blanket ban on all hunting in new jersey mm, spring and, and yep. so that's a pretty strong signal and again there could be a bunch of variables though, that even in my short assessment of that headline or of that um, article that I read that I could be missing. But to me, like that would be a pretty strong, um, that's a pretty compelling piece of evidence. Again, a before after of where when you stop all hunting and it's especially more kind of testable in a place like New Jersey where the human density is just so high. So you in a sense have way more data points um, whereas a place like Ontario, even though there's lots and lots of people, it's still a massive province. Um, so anyways, that's a very Jersey small state I, too, a small wildlife jur jurisdiction as well. Very small. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to add that, that like, um, interesting there's that piece. And I guess I also wanted to add that, you know, the conservation status of black bears rest assured everyone listening is excellent in north america black bears are doing extremely well they are extremely adaptable and they reproduce at high rates and it's also quite difficult for hunters to manage um, black bears in the sense that the reasons i just iterated and the fact that their densities are quite high they can get quite smart when you know they see or sense that their friends are getting shot um, or they can just as we all know, get extremely intelligent. And that makes them a species that I kind of compare to white-tailed deer in that they're 
quite difficult for people to manage. And in order to like effectively put a dent in a black bear population, um, I'm just kind of estimating, but you would need to, I would assume harvest greater than 10 or 15% of the population. And in most jurisdictions, harvest of black bears is below 5%, probably well below 5%. So just some more like objective context there that, um, harvesting bears, you know, to whether it's we as hunters want to grow more ungulates. Um, the reality is it's a pretty difficult thing to achieve unless it's done at these intensive, intensive scales. And those intensive scales we've seen in history, you know, in British Columbia, when there was that era of predator management where, um, you know, most predators were harvested on the spot and there was toxicant blocks being dropped um, from like 1904 to 1964 was kind of the official parameters of that. And, you know, that's an example where that intensity of um, persecution or of hunting, again, not regulated hunting, would be sufficient enough to make a dent in black bear populations or wolf populations. But regulated hunting is not putting a really a dent in the population and more of an argument that hunting is sustainable because especially with black bears and almost all species that it is regulated it is just that it is it's not a subjective thing like hunting is an extremely sustainable practice and sometimes i think for hunters it's um yeah it's just important to know that um those populations are really resilient and although we may think that we're uh you know saving moose babies or uh elk babies by harvesting our spring bear like we're likely it's likely decimal dust in terms of the effect of uh that harvest which is good or bad wherever however you like a um you know just in british columbia where we live there's about one hundred and ten thousand resident hunters in british columbia you're Mm -hmm. allowed two bear tags a year so that would be two hundred and twenty thousand bears that hunters could take and i i believe our annual harvest is sitting around forty thousand black bears or something oh really that's good that's awesome so that just sort of goes to what you're saying if you sort of say like you know harvesting black bears it's saving moose calves on the grand scheme of the entire province you know we're not even coming close to harvesting what we could and we're not even coming close you know to harvesting a level of the population that would actually have an impact on black bears that you know that number of bears is a lot but it's actually pretty small for for the number of bears in bc totally and i guess stepping outside of my like science hat here and into my hunting ethos one i would just encourage hunters to um be cognizant and think of the messaging that can be spread, you know, when we, when we're celebrating a harvest, which is totally an awesome thing to do. Um, you know, even on social media, as long as it's a, a appropriate picture and there's not too much blood and such, but when we have captions that say like, you know, saving a moose calf or, um, saving elk, I think that can rub folks the wrong way. And to be objective, like it's, it's really not true. Again, you it would have to be at these very intense scales, very targeted scales to 
uh, have the effect. And I'll expand on that a little bit more because it's it's difficult for folks to understand. Like, you know, if I shoot a bear in this cup lock that I also elk hunt in the fall, surely the removal of that bear is going to lead to um, more elk on the landscape. But again, it comes down to that scale um, thing where there could be five black bears and there most likely is and you're in the small area that you bear and elk hunt and there's a good chance that you're just going to take one bear well those four other bears will likely take advantage of that you know open space that open home range and they could just as some other science has shown like perhaps a couple more males younger males could move into this big boar's territory that was removed it could make the situation for elk calves worse uh, it could do nothing, but it is unlikely to make it better in the sense that there's going to be more elk calves or moose calves on the land because you shot that single bear. And I think that messaging can be, um, yeah, can be problematic for non-hunters because they think that that's the reason that we're going out to hunt or to trap. Um, and I think we should really do what you know you do, Mark and Curtis, and celebrate the the so many other fantastic components of hunting carnivores um you know heck hunting a bear is arguably it, it, well it's not it's an omnivore and they're delicious so all that to say that um i think we should be careful about some of the messaging that we have on our effect of predator populations and, yeah. and I think that's a that segues into an aspect of the ontario paper which which you know I'll, I'll touch on here is the paper asked this central question about whether hunting um, helped reduce human bear conflict. It said no, it didn't. Part of my question is I'm like, why are we asking that question? Because I'm not completely sold on the idea that that's why Ontario hunters all returned to totally. the spring black bear hunt is they're like oh my god we've been waiting for 10 years to reduce human bear conflict <laughs> when i look at the um the economic footprint analysis uh that was produced by um ontario federation of anglers and hunters had commissioned this but uh it was an economic study of of hunting fishing um, trapping and sport shooting across Canada and all of the provinces and stuff. And I, I'm, I'm looking at it right here. And here's a pie graph that says the motivation for participating in these activities. So what were the motivation of people that they surveyed for hunting? Recreation and enjoyment of the outdoors was the majority of why people hunted. It was for friends, family, and tradition, and for food and sustenance. So even even though that, that is like a national study that's for hunting of all species, black bears are in there as well, I think if this was, you just asked Ontario hunters, why do you want to go back to hunting bears in the springtime, that graph would probably reflect the national um, average which would be, we just like being out in the springtime. It's recreation. We take our holidays. 
We like spending times with our family. We put up a camp, and we used to do this when I was a kid. And we want black bears for food, and we're getting some venison in the springtime. We don't have to wait to the fall. I, I hypothesize that would be the reasons why Ontario hunters wanted and did return to hunt bears in the springtime. So they weren't actually out there under the motivation and so that's probably, mm-hmm. in my mind, would say that's why they didn't hang out on the edge of property lines looking for these problem bears. They got a, they got away from it all. I want to go hunting to get away from it all and set up a camp and quad way back in into the Ontario wilderness to get my black bear. I don't want a bear that's been eating people's garbage because I'm going to eat this bear. And so I, I kind of think, you know, like, was that even the valid question to ask and yeah there are people that say well we've got to hunt bears because we're controlling their population and reducing conflict um when i think when most people are out there for those reasons that that i just stated so in a way i think it's not a fair question to assess and then throw back at the hunting community to go aha see Mm -hmm. you know you did and there and because I think if hunters were honest, they'd go be, they would say, well, that's not why we're out there. If you said right. to us, like, look, hunters, we need you to deal with this human conflict and, you know, and here's some of the, you know, the, what we need you to accomplish. I think hunters would say, okay, when all the cottage people go back to the big city after the long weekend, you give us permission to sit on their decks and we'll get these bears that show up when they're not there and let us hunt at nighttime and and we'll take care of your bear problem for you that that to me would be a completely different result if you for said sure. to hunters this is what we wanted wanted to do so i do feel there might be a bit of a mismatch between asking that question and why hunters are actually out there and 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 what they were actually trying to get out of the spring bear hunt as opposed to um showing that it it didn't actually help another great conflict. point there mark yeah I, I couldn't help but think the same like of the long list of reasons we want to go out and hunt bears like the one that you just said of getting out you know stir crazy after winter that's the exact one for me and it's so nice to be out in late april when the grass is coming up and you're finding sheds and uh, the ungulates are really hungry so they're not as you know wary and you get to see a lot of deer Mm -hmm. elk and moose and yeah it's just a special and if and if you get a spring bear you're like oh man this is great this is going to be some beautiful venison you're not going ha last garbage can you got into buddy (laughs) like exactly yeah the meat is just I, i don't think hunters are thinking you know that way when it comes comes to the bears but um, no, but another, I, I really, another quick point, uh, I wanted to make was, uh, a conversation I had a work one this, uh, this morning, actually, I heard a colleague, t- we're talking about grizzly bears and the point came up that, you know, the British Columbia government is not monitoring grizzly bears and someone on the call asked, well, why is that? And, um, this person said, well, you know, the HC, since the, the hunting ban in 2017, the HCTF dollars. So that's like. For the listeners, mm-hmm. that's uh, basically British Columbia's uh, hunting funds, or maybe you can jump in, Mark. It, Let's like excise. It's a 
Yeah, so the, the Habitat Conservation Trust Foundation is the entity that receives the conservation surcharge that's attached to hunting licenses, trapping licenses, outfitter license and fishing licenses and tags go to the Habitat Conservation Trust Foundation, which reinvests it into conservation projects. It's not the entire cost of our tags and licenses. It's a levy. It's a surcharge on top of your license. Most of it goes to general revenue. A small portion goes to conservation. Yes. So thanks for that, Mark. So yeah, and it's it's not also like all the money that goes towards wildlife conservation, but it's this pretty awesome pot that like supports research. And anyways, mm-hmm. it was just this epiphany that this person had that like since the ban of grizzly bear hunting, the resources to monitor grizzly bears has diminished because hunters had a vested interest in knowing their populations. And it was also part of the tag system in the sense that, you know, if a grizzly bear got hit on a, a, a railroad or, uh, you know, on the highway, that grizzly bear that died was then calculated in, into the quota that hunters were able to harvest. So hunters had this vested uh, interest and kind of incentive to go out and protect grizzly bears and ensure that, you know, try and mitigate some of these conflicts and risk because they wanted the privilege of being able to hunt um, hunt grizzly bears. And like, I'm looking at the a figure in that paper and they have, uh, you know, estimated bear harvest. And that's important data, although it's uh, an index, so not perhaps the best data, it's still probably the best uh, information that Ontario has on the bear population. In fact, I'm positive it is, or they would have included another one. And that just goes to show that hunters have this like multifaceted contribution and benefit to wildlife populations of both measuring them, you know, through their harvest. And also most importantly, like being the champions on the land that want to see studies, want to see that um, drainage be protected or gated off and you know, those actions that hunters lead, and I've seen this firsthand in Montana and Idaho of, you know, gating roads and protecting areas from uh, unsustainable logging, like that has watershed level effects. That's going to help butterflies. It's going to help trout. And it all starts with uh, a user group that wants to stand up and say, hey, we need to protect this area because we black bear hunt in there. We grizzly bear hunt in there. And we want to be able to keep coming back here with, with our kids and being able to harvest um, bears. So I just wanted to add that, that, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. you know, hunters no, are often villainized, but there's so much benefit. No, exactly. And, and that segues into, I guess, kind of one of the conclusions of the Ontario paper that I sort of took issue with. So this is the very last conclusion um, in the abstract Programs promoting coexistence between people and wildlife, including education, capacity building, and management of unnatural food sources are likely to be the most successful at reducing conflicts between people and bears. That is true. Um, The paper did say human-bear conflict was strongly correlated with poor natural food supply. I think that's very well known. Drought summer conditions, poor berry crops, drives bears into human settlements to look for food. Good berry Mm -hmm. crops, 
less generally less conflicts. Um, the part of that that I didn't like is that it kind of comes on the heels of a paper that said, oh, hunting didn't reduce the conflict. So what we should be doing between the lines is not hunting bears in the springtime, but promoting coexistence and, and managing food attractants. And I'm like, right. no, that's not the central question here. Ontario hunters want to hunt spring black bears for food, for recreation, tradition, and friends and family. They have a right to do that in a sustainable way. It's not an either or thing because you said totally. the hunt didn't reduce conflict. So do away with the hunt. They didn't say this. This is just kind of like right. the danger of these papers because then other people get a hold of it and go, ah, oh, here, here's a paper that says you don't need the spring black bear hunt. And I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> Hunters want it for all these other reasons. Um, yes, go ahead and teach people to keep their garbage inside and prevent the conflict. But these hunters still want this resource and a sustainable harvest. They're two different things. So that bothered me a little bit about, about that part of the paper. Me too. And I like, guess the, the, I saw that immediately on social media. One of the reasons I felt like compelled to, to comment, cause you know, we saw some people who I think we know are anti hunters making the assertion like see look like look at this paper saying that and i'm positive most of them didn't even read it i think a lot of them if they would have read it and seen that they didn't test or assess human growth and their time their sample was low i think they could have had a different uh deduction but yeah it's dangerous mark when <laughs> and, folks and, see the and i know it yeah, exactly. And that, that's kind of where I zeroed in on, on this paper as well, is when you see those people using, weaponizing it against hunting, going, oh, here's another example why what hunters are saying isn't valid or isn't true. And this is why we shouldn't be hunting, you know, bears at all. That gets my back up. And, totally. and so then I'm kind of like, what's the deal with this paper? Why, why are those people glomming onto it and not the hunting community? Um, but I don't want to be that person in the hunting community that goes, oh, that paper did not make hunting in that particular study or whatever look good and, and be just like, oh, it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of BS then. It's like, no, I still, if, if it, if I go, oh, wow that really changes my perception and here's maybe how we could reconfigure the hunt based on this new this new evidence i don't want to be that person that's sort of like yeah here's a paper says hunting's good and here's a paper that says hunting bad no there's something wrong with that paper mm -hmm. it, it, you know i i don't want to be that person um and so i was a little that's bit good. worried about this ontario paper going am am i is it a good solid paper and i'm just like oh okay or I'm like, is there some aspects of it that were overlooked? Um, well, so. and the same goes for like papers that maybe come out supporting, you know, predator hunting as a tool for increasing ungulate populations. And the same thing could happen where hunters would see a headline that, you know, reducing wolf populations helps grow caribou. And they could make deductions that say, hey, look, see, like, we need to be killing all the wolves to grow more moose and all these other critters. And 
it can be taken out of context and the exact same thing could happen with this Ontario paper. So it's important as, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, a scientist for me and a hunter, like I want to look at these studies based on the precision, the consistency of their sample, their repeatability, their sample size, you know, the confidence intervals they have. I want to do so objectively because I don't want to cherry pick the science that comes in front of me based on the, perspectives and values that I have like that's a, a danger just because for... you're a hunter and a scientist exactly. yeah <laughs> yeah oh man so so here's here's something I'll, I'll just throw this out to goes back to your conversation with your colleague that they're not monitoring grizzly bears because after the ban in 2018 hunters don't have a vested interest so their surcharge dollars weren't going into grizzly bear monitoring mm -hmm. so here's here's a uh infographic that i oh, yeah. put up on our instagram page so i actually went through all the annual reports of the habitat Concerta conservation trust foundation and totaled up every single grizzly bear study research or habitat project that was funded by hctf post grizzly bear hunt ban using hunter Ooh. trapper guides and angler dollars and right since on. the ban hunter money has been invested into grizzly bear research and conservation to the tune of four hundred and forty three thousand two hundred and sixty dollars so just under half a million dollars since 2018 of that tag hunting license surcharge revenue has continued to go into grizzly bear research habitat enhancement and conservation projects so yes, we can hunt them. We're still paying for them. Hmm. If you look at projects that the Habitat Conservation Trust Foundation is funding with our money, we're funding tons of projects that aren't huntable species. Kids projects, amphibian restoration work, um, projects to make sure that migrating frogs can get across highways, busy highways. Right. These are all bats, um, all these types of things, $100 are helping support. Um, we don't hunt them, but we support it. That's just what we do as hunters, uh, broadly support conservation and, and, and wildlife management, even on non-huntable species. And, and uh, in this case, yeah, we've been spending $100, $100 have been spent on grizzly bears since the ban. So. Wow. That's a key statistic. Good on you for capturing that. And yeah, I really like your uh, infographics that you post. I haven't been on Instagram much lately, but the that information it's is... It's a happening place, dude. <laughs> I know. People are happy on Instagram. They're mad oh, on man, Twitter. I had to take a break. They're all mad at Elon Musk on Twitter. I'm getting <laughs> tired of it. <laughs> uh, Poor guy. Hey, yeah. this has been a really great conversation. Um, you know... So here's a scientist, here's a couple of hunters. We're looking at this paper from the outside. Uh, I don't, you know, think that the people that wrote the paper were trying to do anything nefarious to make hunting look bad. In fact, I think all the authors were from the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry in Ontario in some way, shape or form. But there was, a, I think, a few conclusions in that that maybe weren't fair from the perspective of 
hunting and Ontario black bear huntings and the reasons they wanted to be out and whether or not that related to the efficacy of bear hunting and conflict management. So I think you, you kind of gathered from the podcast there, there is some questions around it. I don't think that it's, uh, you know, a completely, you know, cooked up paper. I think you put it really well, Mateen. There's just some, some things where as a scientist, you would have went, you know, if you did just it, just a little bit more, um, I'd have been, been a bit more happy. So totally. And you know, maybe appreciate your thoughts. No, thanks, Mark. And you know, I, I did read this paper like abstract to conclusion, but that was kind of, that's kind of the extent of my research on this topic. And so perhaps the authors listening, you know, there's something we missed and perhaps they could reach out to you and have a, a podcast from their lens. Um, but I do stand yep, firm absolutely. In, those, in those two observations that we chatted about. And I think we should think about that in a lot of wildlife studies that we look at and really sit back and interpret, you know, are these results robust and um, do they really reflect the the complex variables that are at play on the land? And, you know, one of my, my advisor at the University of Montana, Dr. Mark Hebblewhite, he uh, would attribute ecology to outer space in the fact that there's just so much complexity and um, components going on that we can't see or understand. And it, you know, I think to folks from who maybe don't have a lot of inform or background in wildlife biology, they think it's fairly straightforward, like, you know, bench science or something where you can look under a microscope and get really clear inferences, but it's really tough to make these inferences and wildlife biology is a, is a difficult field to do that. However, it's still, it's not an excuse for not, you know, looking at appropriate timescales. Um, but I just wanted to add that, that there, mm. there is a lot of complexity to monitoring wildlife and that's where we use the best available information we have. And we try and um, make the best deductions we can with the information we have. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's the world of science. And I think the other important thing for everybody to keep in mind when you are an advocate and supporter of science-based wildlife management or evidence-based wildlife management is what's really important in science-based wildlife management is a body of science that's all starting to kind of overlap and point to something that's pointing the path in wildlife management that's pointing the path for hunting regulations and yeah one paper can come out and we kind of you know analyze it and you know weigh things out or, or whatever but it's great keep on this topic get more people researching it asking slightly different questions looking at the data sets a little bit differently producing another paper and another paper and another paper. And then we step back or wildlife managers step back and say, we're starting to get a body of studies around this issue of black bear hunting and conflict in Ontario. There's been 20 papers, 25, 50 papers produced over the last 10 years. And now some things are really starting to come through that to me becomes very strong evidence 
to start to direct policy and and wildlife management and hunting. So the one-off papers are good to pay attention to, but knowing that the robustness in science comes from continuing to invest in research and ask questions and build up that body of knowledge. So well said. Well said. And I'll put the plug in because you're involved in this. The body of knowledge in British Columbia and Alberta that now exists that is demonstrating that wolf density reduction is helping endangered caribou recovery is considered a body of science now. It's not a one-off paper anymore. So uh, I've talked about that several times where, you know, even Dr. Clayton Lamb said on our podcast last year, it's kind of beyond scientific question now. We know that this is helping caribou recover. So unequivocally, um, yep. So, so when I say a body of science, it's like, so if somebody comes along and produces one paper and says, well, no, it doesn't. Great. Take it under advisement, but say, come back with 25 more papers and, you know, see, see where that body of knowledge lands. So, and we call that the smoking gun, you know, the smoking gun of evidence. And, you know, one could turn to like health sciences, like, you know, smoking cigarettes for your whole life, you're going to have a higher chance of cancer or a burn is going to benefit elk. And what your point of getting at, you want those multiple lines of evidence. So like, do we know that elk prefer a burn? We can put collars on them and see that they spend more time in the burns. We can study what they eat and understand that the plants they are eating, you know, like fireweed are indeed correlated with burns. We could even put cameras on, which has been done on their collars and see that they are eating the, the fireweed and the, uh, uh, well, there's another plant that I'm blanking on. Um, anyways, so th those are the things that we, we really like to see in wildlife sciences, those multiple lines of evidence. So like collar data, um, nutrition studies, you know, fecal, um, fecal diet analyses, and to have those multiple lines of evidence to mm. that all say the same thing. That's when you know that the conclusions are strong. Yep. And then there's the case of the study that just came out a couple of weeks ago in Canada about alcohol consumption. Um, right. I, I didn't even read it. I'm like, <laughs> don't want to hear it. Yeah. I like to have, one. I like to have my little, little bourbon. I don't, ignorance is bliss. Right. When it, when it yep. comes to having a, a glass of whiskey, I'm not evidence-based management <laughs> kind of guy. I just, I just want to think that, a odd drink here and there is okay for me. So yeah, science probably says otherwise. Same with coffee. I tend to ignore those studies. Isn't that supposed well. to be good for you? Coffee? It depends. Well, that's sometimes it's good. Mode. Sometimes it's not. That's the crazy right. part then about, it's not. about this day and age with anything. Or we have this discussion at work is you can, you can Google two sides of like, take the coffee thing. For example, you can go and you can Google coffee is bad for you and pfft, there's all this stuff about coffee being bad for you and then you type in coffee is good for you and it's like pfft, there's all this stuff that says coffee's good for you and i think that kind of translates into the hunting world too it's like there's it's how do you weed through all the 
shit that's out there that's just to, to get to the actual facts. And I mean, this is, this is like you just said, yeah, it's the, it's the amount of, of evidence that you have versus not. And right? I think Mateen can add to this as well. We, we started at the very beginning of the podcast. I mentioned a little bit about like the journals that the scientific papers are published in. Um, you said science, nature, journal of wildlife management. Uh, so if you're, if you do see papers or popular articles that are written, summarizing a scientific paper, take a look at the journal that it was published in, uh, because that gives you a little bit of an indication of the credibility of the paper going, okay, that's, you know, probably pretty good. I also find scientific papers that are published, even if they're in journals, not in the big journals, sometimes they're in these off the side type journals that are published by folks that are associated with institutions or organizations that have a cause that are campaigning for a cause. So Save the Wolf Foundation and our scientists just published a paper that said, oh, look, wolf management and hunting is bad. That should raise some red flags because the people involved are also advocates for a cause. Mateen is not an advocate for a cause. He is a scientist. He is in the pursuit of truth. The data speaks for itself, and I will tell you what the data is saying. You're like that. Every scientist we've had on the show is that type of a person. They're, the data will speak for itself. I'll tell you what it, what it means and what I think you could do with it. I have no vested interest in save a wolf, save a caribou, save a whatever. This is just what the data is saying. So yeah, well said. All Mark. of those things are, I think, are important to take into consideration. There, there was just one came out today. I made a little bit of a fun of it on our Instagram page, and it was a article written by a journalist in Spain that said basically said hunting is bad because it causes evolutionary um, reductions in the length of horns of hmm. uh, elephants and rhinos and uh, mouflon goats hmm. in North America. And in fact, we banned hunting of mouflons because hunting was reducing their horn size. <laughs> and I'm <laughs> like, we don't have mouflons in North America. So, so credibility fail right out of the gate uh, on, on that one, right? So, it's always unfortunate when people also like lump in regulated hunting with like poaching and unregulated hunting. Like I see that so often where people say like you know hunting is actually a huge uh factor in populations going extinct across the globe but what they often overlook is that it's not really at least in my definition hunting is regulated um or regulated by some sort of construct whether that's western or indigenous whereas unregulated hunting is often you know, driven for like a wildlife trade and is purely unsustainable. So it's really, I think, important to differentiate those. And I just see it so much and it's frustrating because oh, it's... Yep. I know yeah. what you mean. The great, the great analogy about 
folks that just say, well, the illegal hunting, well, no, that's called poaching. Just like stealing from a store is a crime and it's called shoplifting. It's not called shopping. Right. That's what the legal people are doing. They're shopping and they're paying for their stuff and they're leaving the store. Shoplifters are committing a crime. They're stealing from the store. So we don't call shoplifting shopping because that would piss the shoppers off. <laughs> hey. <laughs> so, Hilarious. all right, man. Um, thanks for coming on the show, Mateen, and uh, giving us your thoughts on this paper. I did reach out to Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters. This is in their back door. Um, the turnaround time was relatively short. The paper just come out. They actually didn't know about it. Um, so otherwise it would have had one of their folks on the show to provide their thoughts. Um, I'll flip this podcast over to Mark at OFA and, um, and they'll hopefully maybe kind of use it. They're going to pour through it in detail and probably come out with, with a statement or whatever. And, uh, hopefully they'll follow up with us and and maybe add to this discussion on another podcast or or whatnot. But yeah, maybe you know, folks at at uh, OFA. Hopefully this conversation may have helped kickstart uh, your lens on this. You are obviously going to be the authorities on this because it's right in your back door. The study areas, the pilots, the the ban, the, even the people in the Ontario ministry, you know, you'll have a relationship with them. So really, really looking forward to see what uh, Ontario Federation and Anglers and Hunters take on this paper is. So Mateen, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Mark Appreciate and Curtis. It. Yeah, thanks for being champions of learning and discovery with wildlife. It's it's definitely inspiring oh, to have great. you two in this great. world. I love, I love it. I love learning from from folks like you likewise uh, free education we'll get a phd out of <laughs> podcasting hey we've listened to so many scientists and learned so many things we can we can we can defend our knowledge to the institution yeah, well, the points you were uh rattling <laughs> off today like some that i hadn't even thought about the the resident bear versus you know rural bear oh. like that's a really good good synthesis so yeah yeah that's that that's why these things always take a group of people to sort through. Totally. Cool man. Thanks for your time. Looking forward to uh all your great new projects and having you back on the show at some time in the future with some cool new wildlife management project or research that you're involved in. Looking forward to a long term regular standing guest here with you. Thanks for having me, Mark. Cool. Take it away, Curtis. Right on. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. Like we said at the beginning of the show, we have a Black Bear edition that we should probably put in. You said you said it should look like a giant Black Bear, but I think so. I think the whole truck should just look like a like a furry Black Bear. I thought about that, but then. What its about... feet would be up on the wheel wells with the claws, and then the tires would be spinning, so this bear would be going down like he's on. But but what about the Sasquatch folk out there? They might see that and think it's a Sasquatch. If, if you're a Sasquatch aficionado and you can't tell the difference between mm. a bear on all fours versus one that's standing on two legs, and know that like <laughs> I don't want what I don't want to hear doing? from you. What are you even doing? Okay, so we'll roll with it. The Black Bear Edition. 
As always, thanks to Alpine Toyota for continuing to support what we do here at the Hunter Conservationist. And if you want to do more for the future of Canadian hunting, then the Hunter Conservationist community is for you. Enjoy two exclusive podcasts, bonus content, and meet like-minded individuals. Join today and get connected to the community that's revolutionizing the future of hunting in Canada. Join at patreon.com slash the hunter conservationist. Also, turkey season is fast approaching. And if you are a seasoned turkey hunter or you have never hunted turkeys before, we have you covered. We have the wild turkey hunting masterclass which even if you're a seasoned turkey hunter, there's still probably some things in there that could help you out. So make sure you check that out. That is on our website at thehunterconservationist.com. All right. Great. Always appreciate folks' support on the patron page and signing up for the Wild Turkey Masterclass. It's just uh, helping to support us, what we do with the podcast, which come to you free and through the support of Alpine Toyota. All right, everybody. Thanks. And we'll see you in the next episode.